Sometimes on retreat, people will come and say, um, how do I get rid of all this sleepiness? And just by the framing of that, there's a sense that they haven't accepted it enough yet. If you're averse to sleepiness, chances are what needs to happen to some further degree is actually more acceptance that sleepiness is happening. And that's where you're guiding people out of trying to solve it and actually know it better. That's guiding them more toward the development of the third foundation of mindfulness. Can you know sleepiness? And then when people come in and say, yeah, there's a lot of sleepiness and I'm aware of it and working with it, then you might say, well, have you tried you know, standing up? Have you tried opening your eyes? And it'd be a little bit more sense like, oh, actually there might be something you could do about it. You don't necessarily just have to become accepting of it. And then the interventions are not based in aversion, they're based in skillfulness. So, um, and this happens to a lot of sides of ourselves. I'm, I'm tired of how angry I am. I'm tired of how stupid I sound. I'm tired of this, I'm tired of that. It's like, oh, we probably need a little bit more acceptance, intimacy, direct contact with this side to a degree that that's skillful to kind of only not intervene and get to know something better. Because then when you actually go to do the intervention, it's not, again, out of self-hatred or self-frustration, um, trying to become a better person or more like the person you wish you could be. So you're not feeding into that. And that's, again, how these two foundations of mindfulness um, work together. So the fourth foundation starts with the... Uh, hindrances. Then the next two pieces, it goes into the five aggregates and the six sense doors. Um, Then it goes into the seven factors of awakening, which are um, sort of the positive opposite of the hindrances. And we'll go more into that later. But it goes, once you can suspend the hindrances, know how to work with them, know how to dispel them, then you're streaming, uh, wakefully, not so hindered. And there are two, two things you can do in the stream to sort of deepen your, um, both your sense of freedom and also cultivate um, the right relationship to streaming through experiences, so not reinforcing a sense of self in the stream, even if it's pleasant while you're streaming along. Like, I'm such a great streamer. I'm the best streamer ever. I'm only going to stream from now on. I've really got this master. Look at me stream. I'm streaming along. So be careful about selfing in the stream, even if it tastes really pleasant. I'm finally the self I've always wanted to be. And also, um, seeing what your relationship is to these six sense doors. So the six sense doors are the five senses of the sight, smell, taste, body, sound, and then the sixth door of experience are all the objects of mind, thoughts, internal dialogue, songs, internal images, sense of the past and the future. Those are all content. But also all your moods and emotions and mental qualities can be sensed at the door itself, at the door of the heart and the mind. This is very uh, common um, ways that the Buddha had people reflect, and not so often did he ask them to reflect at the exact same time both the five aggregates and the six sense doors. But getting to know these two, um, these two systems, they, they help us, again, cultivate a greater stability of freedom so we don't get hooked and caught. The five aggregate model, this five aggregate model, is often the Buddha's way of having people look in the stream of their experience and see if they're taking any of the qualities of stream as a lasting self. And it's our default setting. We can be streaming along and realize we're mostly streaming, but there's still this part of me that's not part of the stream. There's I am streaming. So there's a river and I am a solid entity moving through the river. As you 
um, awakened further and further, you find like, oh wait, the I would have been my body and the sense of me and the body <clears throat> flowing through time. But the body is also made up of all these different uh, sensations and it's constantly changing. Oh, the body is actually a streaming experience. It's not a solid me different from the river. I'm passing through the body as part of the stream I'm passing through. So when we go into the five aggregates, looking at the body is one of the ways that if you know the body better, there's less you can um, grab onto as a uh, unchanging, lasting sense of self. Unexamined, we do it all the time. It's sort of a default setting. But when you look at that closely, you can see it's not actually true. So we still talk about sunrises and sunsets because as from a common perspective, that's what it looks like. But fundamentally, most people in this room, there's probably still one holdout, <laughs> the holdout. <clears throat> we know that the, earth, that the sun compared to the earth is actually fairly still and it's the earth's rotation that makes the sun appear to arise and pass. So like, yes, of course, but that's really, I'm, I'm watching an earth turning. No, you can say it's dawn. Come on, people, we can talk about a sunrise, but fundamentally we know it's actually the earth turning. It's kind of fun to do at times to actually, if you are by the ocean and you're watching the sunset and then you just like shift concepts and you actually, it's like, what if the sun were stable? Wow, that's how, like, this is the earth turning. <laughs> wow, no way. And both are true. It's just one is so uncommon, but it can be accurate to kind of like, then you're feeling that you're on this huge ball going around another ball and so far away and that we're spinning. Wow. Versus the felt sense, we're static. Coming into the aggregate model, there's just so many unconscious default common settings that we have that help us navigate. And we're trying to actually, most of us, get ourselves under control and make it reliable. I always want to be the person who's not sick, the person whose <clears throat> um, mind is working well, the person who's patient. I'm always trying to get this guy to like be solid. And I like that version of me. And so that's the one I'm trying to... like. Um, organize myself around. I am this. When you go into the five aggregate model and you look at the various places you might be claiming as a solid sense of you, a solid sense of self, you find that it's, a, it's also part of the stream. And one of the great awakenings that comes pretty far down the road <laughs> or pretty close to your final awakening is when you realize not disconceptually, but experientially, I am, I am a part of the river. There's nothing in here that isn't also streaming. And the knowing I have is part, the stream gets to know parts of itself. And so you're streaming, but there's no last place where there's a lasting sense of self. And getting that, you get glimpses of it, but then you learn to live with this more fluid streaming sense that everything is streaming and there's no little holdout of self. That's how this five aggregate model is used. And so when we come into this foundation, I probably didn't go into this word enough, uh, dhammas, and why this, this foundation is called dhammas. <clears throat> dhammas are... Um, It, it has several translations and they all work well together if you can get at it. Um, dhammas are laws and they're also the phenomena being um, governed by those laws. So the material sciences investigate the universe and it's all the dharmas of physical laws. And so gravity works, that's why this goes down. There's a law, it's lawful that this goes down and that it does go down when I let go of this striker, hits in my hand. That's the, that's the Dhamma of gravity. That this is made up of 
um, atoms, different types of atoms come together and becomes wood and cloth. That's the Dhamma of atomic structure and molecular structure. It's the Dhamma, if this is wood, that this grew as a tree at some point. So you're looking at all the laws that are governing this as an existent thing and how this behaves. So it behaves due to gravity. It's solid, which means that there's some uh, chemical forces holding this as a, a solid entity, molecular forces. So that's the physical sciences, the laws and the phenomena. What we're interested in Buddhism is the laws and the phenomena of suffering and freedom. We're interested in the laws that um, cause suffering and the laws that uh, diminish or deconstruct suffering. We're interested in the lawfulness of the waking up process. Uh, It's not arbitrary. Um, They're actually, the suffering and freedom is a completely lawful system. It works, it's governed by laws just like gravity is lawful, electricity is lawful. Um, The functioning of galaxies is lawful. We don't think like, it's 90% lawful, that 10% is the way that this deity likes galaxies to work. We can't really figure out the laws. Now, it's actually the entire galaxy works completely by lawful systems. The human body, the biology, is completely lawful how it works. Um, if you are really a fundamental material, material scientist, you can be quite happy with the fact that the brain is generating our, the stream of our experience Those are biological laws and biological phenomena. And the Buddha is only interested in the phenomena of suffering, the phenomena of freedom, and the laws that govern both freedom and suffering. So this fourth foundation, when he calls it dhammas, he's interested in the laws and the phenomena of suffering and freedom. So that's why we're getting into the hindrances. That's why we're getting into the aggregates, the six sense doors, These are the systems, the lawful systems that generate our freedom or our confusion. Is that land for people? Any questions about that? In the book version of this course, that will come earlier (laughs) when we're talking about the uh, fourth foundation. The word Dhamma um, often isn't, it, it isn't Hinduism. And modern Hinduism uses Sanskrit, which would be Dharma. And Dharma is um, used so many ways for so long that it, it has now broad meanings. Um, but one of the, the Dharmas at the time of the Buddha and why he used this word is that depending on what family you were born into, that would determine the dharmas of how you should behave in society. They, they would say, oh, it's not by choice that we have this untouchable caste that pollutes the universe just by their very existence. That's actually lawful. It's not an opinion on my part. We're talking about fundamental law. So the caste system for them is lawful. And it's not a human system it's like, no, no, this is the way the gods constructed it. This is the way the universe actually works. It's, they would call that a dharma, the dharma of caste, for example. And then <clears throat> what you're supposed to do to find harmony is to behave within the dharmas of your designation. So societies work best when everybody does what they're supposed to do. And that benefits certain people and they kind of like the dharmas, and <clears throat> they would try to train other people, be accepting of your dharmas, be accepting of the laws and the phenomena of your social system. And then the Buddha took that term and said, yes, there are laws, but the caste system is not one of them. The caste system is uh, a wrong view, is operating uh, under the scheme of wrong view. So he challenged that. And when he said the interesting dharmas to study 
are the actual experience of suffering and its true causes, not its false causes. And the actual experience of liberation and its true causes and way to actually cultivate greater freedom and finally ultimate freedom. That it's all very lawful. There's no, um, there's no elephant I have to sacrifice to a certain god to bring me a sense of well-being. That would be the god, whether God likes me or not. It's like, well, it's not really like it's. It, that's up to the god. That's up to the deity to grant me um, well-being. So I do a lot of sacrifices. And the Buddha said, "That's that's. It doesn't work that way. Suffering is caught. Suffering has true causes, and suffering has true remedies. But it's not up to the whims of the deities whether I suffer or not." I can actually find my suffering in my own system, the causes and the freedom in my own system. So Dharma in a Buddhist context is always pointing towards the teachings, the path, the understanding how the the system works, and then the phenomena within the system are also dharmas. Yeah. Can you give an example of that? Is, is the deity saying, you know, go work in the mines or something? I mean, what? I don't get it. Yeah, the, the false, well, I mean, the false sources of suffering are how most of our um, common mind might work. <clears throat> um, you made me very happy. You made me very sad. Oh, okay. It's your fault that I'm happy. It's your fault that I'm sad. Okay. So since you're causing my happiness and sadness, you should behave such and such or you're being cruel. Okay. So that's false sources of yeah. happiness and sadness. Okay. When we come into the structure of the five aggregates, there are five of them. Um, there's the material form called rupa. And the idea is you see it's arising and it's passing. So coming into the body, seeing the arising and passing of sensations, the arising and passing from birth to aging to death, knowing that um, the physical body is part of the stream of experience, not an independent, lasting uh, entity. <clears throat> the, other, the next uh, aggregate is Vedana. We've already worked with that, seeing it arising and passing, and seeing that Vedana is just part of the stream of experience, Looking at uh, cognition, the, the cognizing mind, we might call that a sense of lasting self. I'm the one who's thinking. And you can look at it more closely like we did last night in the meditation and see that all the thinking, all the cognizing, and even the sense of self is part of the stream, not outside of the stream, experiencing the stream, is actually part of the stream of changing experiences. Such are... Uh, the English here is volitions, and that's the Pali word sankharas. All of our habits and patterns that we take for a sense of self um, are also part of the stream. So I might say, well, I'm generally a happy person. I'm generally a helpful person. That's how I know who I am. I'm familiar with myself. The sense of self that I'm uh, holding on to are the patterns of me. And then to realize those patterns actually can shift over time and the happiness comes and goes. Uh, so you find that all the volitions, all the sankharas that make you up are part of the stream arising and passing. And such is consciousness, this ability to know, this ability to stream in the knowing. It's one of the last places that we hold out for there being a lasting self, <clears throat> even deep in meditation, is that there is a noun that is witnessing. There's some me that's actually the root of why I'm streaming through time at all. <clears throat> There's, there must be a me there. If you can quiet down most of your other mental activity, bodily activity, and thoughts, and you actually just come into a more simple form of knowing, you can then begin to investigate what is doing the knowing. And is the knowing itself a fixed entity, or is it also a part of the, the stream of changing experiences? And you can actually come into a stream of knowing where you see that knowing is, is a conditioned part of the changing stream. 
it's not <clears throat> a fixed entity independent of the stream. Not sure everybody uh, has had a, a convincing experience of that, but <clears throat> it's what um, there are stages of awakening and they pass through people who are stream entrants, people who really, they've had their first contact with Nibbana and they're flowing along and they're kind of convinced, yes, yes, this is all flowing, but they kind of default, they still can default back to this common view that they are a lasting entity, but fundamentally they know that they're not. It's sort of like we fundamentally know the earth goes around the sun, but we have the common view that it's the sun that's moving. Stream entrance know the difference, but they still fall back into this common view that they there's something about them that's lasting. There are all these awakening processes, but only people who are fully awakened don't have this reference point that there's a lasting entity within that's streaming through time. It's such a, um, a deep and pervasive sense that there's somebody here. There actually is a temple. There's a little marble inside of this system that doesn't change. And that's what I'm calling temple. First it was my body, but then my body changes. But there's, it's my emotions, it's my psychological self. I was like, well, that changes too. Well, it's the little guy in the cockpit making the choices. I'm like, no, no, he changes too. It's like, well, it's, there must be something inside there because it feels like there's a noun. It feels like there's, a, there's something here and here. It feels like the same thing that was here, here, and here. So isn't there something here that's not stream, part of the stream, but independent of all these changing experiences? As you actually get intimate with that felt sense, you see that it also has fluctuations. It's denser at times. It sometimes doesn't seem to be arising at all. There's knowing without a knower. And up until that point, it's kind of philosophical, but you actually can begin to explore the felt sense of whether there is a knower. This, it's like, it feels so real. But when you investigate it and become intimate with it, it isn't. It has um, a lot of fluctuation in it. That's the whole development of looking at knowing and knower. Um, usually most things else in, your, in the stream have to be fairly tranquil for that to be um, an accessible experience. That's how you work the five aggregates and you see that all, every place you would call me is actually a fluctuating experience. And if you can deal with the fact that the totality of you is a fluctuating experience, and there really is no um, noun going through experience, um, then you kind of master the five aggregate model. <laughs> so five aggregates are there to kind of deconstruct the sense of self. The six spheres, the sense spheres, the six of them, So there's a material form, Vedana. Um, oh, I'm sorry. What they're calling cognition here is um, off, often translated as perception. So that's just a, a language choice. Usually it's a material form, Vedana, perception, volition, and consciousness. Technically, they're all sankaras, but sankaras are a little bit more, what are the pattern makers? What, what's happening? Um, we are patterns making patterns. So anger creates a pattern of anger. Love creates a pattern of love. Um, tranquility creates a pattern of tranquility. These are all specific sankaras. They're patterns of heart and mind. Um, and so they stand out here as the pattern makers. The activity of pattern making is what sankharas are. Consciousness um, is not necessarily a pattern maker. It's just the clean knowing. It's just the fact that blue can register inside your mind. That's you're conscious of blue, but that doesn't make a pattern. It's whether you like it, don't like it, struggle with it, 
prefer it, don't prefer it, then you're pattern making around the experience of blue. But consciousness is not a pattern maker. Sankaras are pattern makers. Yeah. So that independent origination, they're pattern making, and pattern making has a momentum to it. And because pattern making has a momentum to it, we get consciousness arising. It arises because there's an underlying urge for patterns to reproduce themselves. Anger thinks it's solving something, but it's really just creating more and more anger. Love thinks it's arriving somewhere, but it's creating more and more opportunities for love. So sankaras are the things that make the patterns? Yes. Sankaras are things that make patterns. What's volition? Volition is the English, one English translation of the word sankara. And Sankara is it's, it's an important word and it stands for a lot. And there isn't really a good English translation. So um, it's volitions. It's the part of us that's pushing or responding. Um, so they call it volitional activity. Activity that's not just like uh, my heartbeat is not a choice. My heart, I mean, I'm not making a mental choice to have a heartbeat. So my heart beating is not a sankara, but my swatting at a mosquito or my choosing food, I'm, that's me making choices. So those are volitional activities, choice activities. And those tend to come from previous patterns and unconsciously they produce that same pattern from the past to the present to the future. Those are sankaras. Yes. And so these volitions, sankara, the root of it, the kara of sankara, is the same root as karma. And so these volitions are where karma is generated. You can have beautiful karma from beautiful volitions. You can have negative karma from negative volitions. Intention is where the um, the volition um, goes from uh, an internal energy and it gets translated into an action, into a choice. And so there can be anger. As soon as anger chooses, it's come into an intention. So you can have anger that hasn't intended anything yet. It's just sort of broiling and then it begins to actually turn towards an action. I, and first it starts mental actions, I will do this, and then physical or verbal actions, I am doing this. And when it's just arisen, the anger, but there's no volition or intention, there's no karma, the karma's not coming up. Okay. Yeah, no, that's actually interesting that karma's coming up this much. It's, it's an important part of our tradition. Um, so what you need to know about karma is there's karma and vipaka. Karma puts something in motion, vipaka is the result. So anger arises in this moment as vipaka. Because of previous anger, I am wired to have present anger. And it could just be DNA that start, you know, because of previous wiring for anger, I can have anger here and now. But if I let the anger rise, but I don't act on it, then I'm just experiencing the, the arising of it. But as soon as I begin to act on it or fuel it, then I'm creating new karma. So if the uh, apple tree creates apples, the apple is the vipaka, but it contains the seeds. If those seeds get planted, then you'll have more apple trees. So that you feel anger or sadness or grief is the vipaka, is the outcome. 
of previous patterns. If you just experience it and don't push it, then you're not pattern making, you're just pattern receiving. I'm receiving patterns from the past, but I'm not reinforcing them in the present. Therefore, they won't be stronger in the future. So then when the sankharas uh, fizzle out, there are no more aggregates? No, there are, good question. There are still aggregates. Um, uh, There are no future lives. There's not enough fuel to produce a future life. And what you can, that's if you believe in the cosmology of multiple lives. There's the, the sankharas have, um, there, there's only vipaka at that point. So you only have a beating heart, you still have life momentum because of previous life drive. And so the Buddha and all the arahants are riding out the vipaka, the outcome of previous life drive put in motion. And they just, they're just riding out the momentum, but they're not creating more momentum. Does that work? Like a Buddha had children. Yeah. yeah. Back then he was still creating karma. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I, he also loved a lot of people and he put a whole dispensation in motion, but he himself is not receiving the karma of the outcome. So it's interesting how there is how can you actually still be participating in the world beautifully? But what you're really looking out for is what really creates karma. Um, One of the cores of it is how much I there is in the action. And if there's not a lot of I in the action, you're not producing an I outcome to suffer the outcome of the action. So you put a lot of stuff in motion. But... uh, None of that was karma producing for him. There is a point where this conversation actually sinks the boat. So I just like, before the boat begins to like, whoa, okay. I think we've spent our neuron capacity and our synaptic fires as much as we can. So let's just be careful of the conversation on karma. So, does it feel urgent? I, no. I wanted to ask about self and mm-hmm. I and me. And, um, Don't we all want to ask about yeah. self and I and me? Start to form a pattern to not think of self. And so I was thinking, instead of using the word I, me, or can you start to talk about the body? And yeah. What, so you just say, my body cried. Oh, this body cry. Yeah, some people experiment with softer rigidity. It can get awkward to try to really take that out of your language, but um, at times I'll talk about myself in the third person because I'm very intimate with Temple. I've been with Temple my whole life. But Temple is more like a roommate I've had than me because I don't always get the choice over him. And if I could have ever controlled anybody in this universe, it would have been him. And he won't be controlled. And so the best I've done is cohabitated with him, had many meetings to discuss how we're doing. (laughs) And... We've struck a balance of how to cohabitate. But what is the me that's cohabitating with him? Well, it gets more and more, there's less. It used to be all temple, then there was temple and some knowing, and now there's more and more on the temple side of the equation, and less and less that's knowing him very intimately. And I say, oh, well, knowing is a part of it, but the knowing doesn't feel completely bound up in what is knowing. Eugene has a saying that knowing isn't bound by what it's knowing. The knowing activity 
the stream of knowing doesn't have to be bound up by what it's knowing. So the knowing of temple is less and less tied up and struggling with what it's knowing. It's just knowing, caring and suggesting uh, wise things for his reflection. <laughs> so that's one way. That's one way. And also allowing yourself to be more fluid than rigid. And if you allow yourself to be more fluid than rigid, you also suffer less. So if you had a bucket of water and a bucket of ice, I could stab a fork into the bucket of water over and over and over and it would just splash. But if I start stabbing at the ice, I can pick at it, chip it, scratch it. So the rigid eye tries to protect itself by rigidifying, but then it can suffer a lot of abuse. And developing over time a more fluid self means that there's a lot of painful experiences, but they tend to ripple through and dissipate. There's nothing for them to strike at. So if you insult me and I'm in a fluid self, it's unpleasant in the moment, but it doesn't hit anything I'm cherishing. If you come at me and I'm in my rigid self, then if I am lasting and you don't like me, then I can't change. I'm so rigid, I can't change. So therefore, any insult is saying something very definitive about me. But if you don't like a particular moment in time of me, that's just in the fluid process of being me. It was unpleasant for you. But I don't have to take it as personally. So the fluid, but some people talk about the, the sense of density of self and the less dense self, a rigid self or a more fluid self. Fluid selfing is much more um, productive if you can if you can develop fluid selfing. It tends to be better than rigid selfing, but rigid selfing tends to be better than chaotic selfing. So chaotic selfing is confusing. So people go hope for a rigid selfing or something they could count on, but then that bears a lot of stress. So people graduate out of rigid selfing into something that's more fluid and dynamic. That's also a definition of mental health. Is it? Definition of what? It's, it's one of Dan Siegel's definitions of mental health. Uh, is that you, you know, the more rigid you become in your thinking about anything, the, um, the less well you are mentally. So it's mental health, not health. <laughs> <laughs> it's the definition of mental health. <laughs> 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 I think for me also um, like along with the sense of uh, flexibility or fluidity as opposed to rigidity there's like a multiplicity within the self um, and I think like in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition there's like a lot of ancestor work and seeing how like we are actually composed of the actions and tendencies and lessons and all of these things from like many of our ancestors, whether biological or also people who raised us. And I know for me, like, if I pick up habits or even accents or words from people I'm around, you know, there's just like this sense of the multiple and the vastness of just like what's coming through this. And like if I were thinking about housemates, it would almost be like, there's actually a rotation of just like identical sibling housemates that I look like. Katie. Twin, twin. <laughs> these like, twins, right? like quadruplets. Those, like, twins. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, for me, like it's also part of why dedicating the merit or like mm-hmm. these metta practices feel really powerful because yeah, it's not about some like singular I. It's like this whole long story long chain of events of causalities that create whatever volition happens to come forward right now. And that what, what tends to happen is we're, we're not that conscious, but we're still living with the forces happening. We become more conscious, and then we become free within some of the forces that are happening. And uh, then we can calm certain ones down that are not helpful, but also encourage ones that are helpful. And so you might find that there are um, ancestral patterns that have been handed down that are not helpful. And so a certain train of uh, um, 
anger, for example, might be generational coming down to the generations recognizing, yeah, that's part of my family lineage, but I don't want to keep adding into that. But you also might find there's something coming from your familial lineage that is helpful. And actually knowing it and not repressing it and having a positive relationship to it is part of your the, the beautiful vitality of your stream to come to know. And so not all aspects of self need to be uh, repressed. It's really um, allowing them to be more in their fluid nature, not to reify a sense of uh, unchanging self because that's very unadaptive to have a rigid sense of self. But people default with looking for, um, for comfort. One last question. I thought I heard you saying that love, uh, the cultivation of love, can also be a volition. Yeah. Okay, that, that leads me to my question with metta and love. If it's volition, but it can be a wholesome volition. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Generosity is a beautiful, wholesome volition. Okay. Love is, compassion is, okay. uh, the cultivation of patience is a, is a pattern you can create, a patient pattern. Um, there are a lot of beautiful patterns that you can create. A lot of beautiful patterns you can create that are supportive for your own awakening and your well-being. So coming out of the five aggregates into the six sense spheres, you get the same language. You don't get this language of the five aggregates. You just want to see them arising and passing. With the six sense spheres, they go one by one through the senses. Um, here they know the eye, they know the forms, which is really the, the objects that are being seen. And they know the fetter arisen on both. So if you're streaming along, there might be no fetter between, of, around eye consciousness, there's no fetter riding on ear consciousness. Just are you bound, are you struggling, are you tied to the experience, or do you have a sense of freedom at all six sense doors? So you do a scan and see, is there a fetter arisen at your eye? Is there something arisen at your tongue, your nose, your ear? Are your thoughts fettering you? Are you tied up in them, caught up in them? You know how an arisen fetter can be removed and how to prevent future arisings of that fetter. It's sort of like the hindrances. If there's a problem, knowing which sense door it's arising at, learning to uh, disentangle yourself from it, and then possibly um, preventing that in the future. And they go through all of the six senses doing that. And then we come to the uh, awakening factors. Any questions about five aggregates or the six sense spheres before we go on to the awakening factors? Can you just give uh, an example, like a fetter of one of the senses? Yeah, Yeah. great. Thank thank you for asking. Um, So what would be a fetter at the eye door? What would have you be entangled at the eye door? A deer. So you see a deer, but you don't have to be entangled in it. It could just be visual experience. Love could arise, but it's very fluid. No handcuffs, no binding. But if it is, if you're fettered in relationship to seeing a deer at the eye, what is the fetter? What's the experience of being entangled? Oh, I don't want it to get hurt. I don't want it to get hurt. I don't want it to leave. Stay right there. Actually, come closer. Oh my God, it has babies. Definitely stay. And the little babies are so cute. I want to pet them. I want to pet them. I want to pet them. So then there's like, there's like you're, you're roping yourself up to the eye door, looking for the pleasure of it. And you realize, I can't be fluid with this experience. I'm not having strong preferences. And it's starting to be, I'm bound up at the eye door. I'm now fettered at the eye door. What else? There's a fetter at another door. What's, a, what's your favorite fetter? Smell a skunk. Smell a skunk. Let's, you're being aversely bound up, struggling at the nose door. Versus like, yep, this is definitely skunk. It's definitely strong. I'm definitely choosing to have less of it. But it's not, I don't, I'm not suffering. I'm not bound. I'm not, my, my well-being is independent of the smell. It's just, I don't prefer it. But I don't feel like my happiness is now inaccessible because of what's happening at the nose door. 
pick a door, pick a door, everybody pick a door. <laughs> Claim your fetter at a door. What fetter do you have at which door? Right, the ear door. Music, NPR, yeah. Pleasant at the ear door, unpleasant at the ear door. Am I fettered at the ear door? Or am I streaming at the ear door? Am I streaming at all six doors? If I'm not streaming, which door am I not streaming? Am I not streaming at all the doors? Am I not streaming at one of the doors? Uh, so that's a, a beautiful technical question. Um, can you be fettered at the actual eye door? And um, bifurcating that uh, can be interesting if you really want to get into it, but what happens is that the actual mind door um, is constantly receiving information at all the other doors. And so more of a common, easy access is just seeing I'm fettered at the eye door because I'm obsessed at the eye door and I keep looking for happiness at the eye door. But you might say, well, it's really the mind that's caught. It's like, yeeah, the activity is in the seeing versus is it my ideas of the seeing? So it's actually like, actually what I'm seeing is not so bad, but it reminds me of something I love. So actually the fetter, the sneaky fetter is at the mind door it's like, no, no, it's actually that ice cream. I want that ice cream. So I'm not the visual experience, the auditory experience, the aroma experience. So how can you be fettered at the mind, mind door? What's a mind door fetter? Mind door fetter is any fantasy. So it's, if it's not one of the five senses, it tends to be a mind object. So fettered in relationship to the past, mm-hmm. fettered in relationship to the future. <laughs> You're fettered at a door. And then to know which door you're fettered at and why are you fettered there. Vedna is probably playing a role in why you're so fettered at a particular door. So then which door are you fettered at? What is the fetter? And um, can you let go of the fetter? And then going to Vedna might play a role in why that fetter is so, so strong. Yes, and if you uh, at the end of the um, the end of that discourse, he says, um, "One who experiences these tendencies of resistance to unpleasant, chasing after pleasant, and ignoring neutral, I declare this person, this one is fettered, and this one is fettered to old age, sickness, and death." Because the fettering tends to be resistant. It tends not to be a dynamic, fluid thing. The fettering tends to actually concretize or reify. And then as a strategy for security, maybe you can hold it together for a while. I want this. I get this. I'm resisting this. I don't get that. But at some point, all those patterns arise and pass because they're not actually solid. They will change. And so if you've invested in something not changing, and it finally does change, then you suffer the loss of what you just invested in. And so then not only are you fettered to the suffering in the moment, you're then fettered to the aging and sickness and dying of whatever you've tried to establish. Thus I declare. So it makes your relationship to it. It's your relationship to it that's the important Yeah, thing to the relationship to the sense experience keeping that in the fluid process. Can you define the word reify? Because you've used it a couple of times and I'm like, oh, what it means. Yeah, and so um, to reify something. Solidify. solidify um, almost like if, uh, I don't know, if you, if you had a, a bamboo pole and you had a flag on top and it was falling over, You'd add more boards and solidify the bottom. You'd add adding to the solidification process is to reify. 
So reifying my beliefs is I make them stronger. I work them so that they feel stronger. That's uh, reifying. Re is the Latin word for thing, so I guess you could say it's thingifying. Thingifying. (laughs) I'm thingifying. If you can deal with the fact that there are no actual nouns, they're just slow verbs or repetitive verbs pretending to be nouns, then you're living in a verbing universe, of, a universe of action, and no actual actors in the universe, just verbs densifying themselves to look temporarily like nouns, but we're peopling. All these atoms in me are being held by biological processes to people, me. But temple is not actually an unchanging noun. He's just a very repetitive, pattern-making verb. And when the causes and conditions supporting that pattern-making give out, so will temple. There's no temple other than the patterns that are making him. Yes. Um, so when you talk about the Federer's mind door being fantasy, um, is when you when you say mind, do you mean sitta? So is it heart mind? Yeah. The door here. When they when they in Pali when they talk about the the door of the mind, they use a Pali word M A N O mano. But it is ostensibly the same thing as citta. It's just that they talk about it more as a door because um, citta is, a, again, a little bit more like the, the room and there's activities of objects in the room. Mm-hmm. And so the activities, we could be fighting each other, but the air is still kind of cool. So the activities of, them, of one's experience can be um, very active but the heart space mind might be fairly tranquil. And there's some um, differentiation of what are the objects and what is the um, mind heart space that the objects are arising and passing in. So it's essentially the same thing, but when we're talking about sitta, we're thinking more in terms of space, and when we're talking about mono, we're thinking more in terms of the processes. The processes. So let's take our second stretch break. We'll come back and we'll put this into practice. And thank you for staying with it for so long and uh, having really interesting questions and exploring the material. So let's take another 10 minute bio break. We'll come back and turn this into practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.